Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of discussions with entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. Lawyerist supports attorneys building client-centered and future-oriented small law firms through community, content, and coaching, both online and through The Lawyerist Lab. And now, from the team that brought you the Small Firm Roadmap and your podcast hosts. Hi, I'm Ashley Steckler. And I'm Stephanie Everett. And this is episode 373 of the Lawyers Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, I'm talking with author and TV correspondent Alicia Menendez, author of The Likeability Trap. Today's podcast is brought to you by Postali, LaPay, and Posh Virtual Receptionist. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support. Stay tuned. We'll tell you more about them later on. So Ashley, you've, you've just gotten back from a little vacation, which is always, I think, lovely. <laughs> yeah, it was so nice. It was so refreshing. I had uh, most of the week off last week. And I think we can safely share also that you did a pretty good job of checking out, except for, I know, one little instance. <laughs> yeah, admittedly, there were a couple little instances. Two, small windows. Part of it for me, you know, we have our tasks and accountabilities so well managed around here that I was able to go in and prep for my time away and like move some things off my plate, reprioritize some dates. So I felt well prepared when I left, but we have a lot of stuff happening around here, exciting new stuff that as I was preparing to leave, I didn't really want to miss. And so what ended up happening was I was on my vacation and I wanted to check in on those couple things because I knew that they would be moving as I was as I was out. So I did that and <laughs> snuck in to Slack to check out the messages. And actually one thing had been lifted and it was moving and I, I didn't need to check in on it at all. And then there was another message while I was sneaking in that caught my attention and I chimed in to you all and said, you know, this could be something that I could just resolve. <laughs> you know? Yes. To which I kindly think I replied something to the effect of, thanks, Ashley, we've got it. Go away. <laughs> you did. And it was so nice. It was, you know, one, I felt a little caught. Uh, two, it was a nice reminder. I was actually enjoying a nice little brunch of crepes at the time, um, waiting for the food. And it was such a nice, refreshing reminder that one, yeah, you got it. I didn't actually even need to know any of the details um, because I knew that it didn't need my attention. Um, and it was also this nice, to me, little reminder that we talk about around here that when you're when you're gone, take that time and be away because you need to have that time to recharge and refresh and come back. And I didn't need to be thinking about whatever it was that I wanted to check up on. It was my own curiosity, right? And I was able to, I was able to unhook and it was, um, unhook. That's a funny, <laughs> funny that I, I bring it up and talk about it that way. For me, I like coming to work. I'm excited about what I'm doing here. I'm excited about what we have coming up and it was actually kind of unhooking myself. Like it's fine. And so it was a nice reminder to hear that from you too. Hey, yeah. we see you. Bye. <laughs> have fun. Right. right. I think it's a good reminder for everyone because, yeah, like I like what I do too. And sometimes 
I think I said to my husband earlier this year, I said, will you occasionally just say to me to work less? Because I'm just naturally going to work more than I need to because I enjoy it and I like it and I get involved in my work and it just takes up time and space and and that's a thing. And I have to kind of fight that sometimes and tell myself, no, you don't have to do this task today or right now or somebody else can do it or you don't. It is like a mental conversation for me that I have to have with myself a lot. And so it was easy for me to say that to you, but I need to hear it as well. So I'll preemptively give you permission to remind me when I take my next vacation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I agree. I, I feel much the same way. And so I like that we've created an environment where, where we remind each other of those things. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, that's the environment I think everyone should strive to create in their firm. Most of the time when I press people, when I talk to them and they'll tell me like emergencies came up or this client thing came up while I was out. Usually if I press them on a little bit, it's like, actually, that wasn't really an emergency or that really didn't need my my attention, just like kind of the thing that came up when you were out. It was like, yes, you could have solved that for us, but we could have solved it without you too. And sometimes it takes you being away to give your team a chance to step up and solve the problem without you, or quite frankly, to see what breaks, right? Sometimes while you're away, something actually might break and it might go wrong, probably won't be malpractice and probably will give you a chance to improve it for the next time. Yeah, absolutely. So now let's check out my conversation with Alicia. Hey, I'm Alicia Menendez. I am an anchor at MSNBC. I'm a mom of two daughters. I host the Latina to Latina podcasts, which you can find wherever you are listening to this podcast. And I'm here today to talk about my book, The Likeability Trap. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for being here. I am so excited to dive into this book because it spoke to me. It is real. And I know all of our listeners and especially the women out there, this will resonate. So maybe just to kick us off, what is the likability trap? Ooh, you know, I originally imagined that I was going to write like an eat, pray, love for likability <laughs> where I would, you know, do yoga and eat gelato and learn mm. to care less about being well-liked as a person who cares very much about what others think of me. And as a person who is governed by other people's opinions, I imagined that there were women out there who were just sort of living their own life, marching to the beat of their own drummer, and they had it figured out. And what became interesting to me, since my fundamental skill is that I'm an interviewer, was that as I interviewed those women, I learned that even those women who were not governed by likability felt that they paid a price for being so brazenly themselves. And that was especially true when they were ambitious women. It was especially true when they were women who worked in male-dominated fields. And so that core question of what it means to be a likable lady leader became my new focus. And what I found is a lot of what your listeners will know because they have all lived it, which is that I call it the Goldilocks conundrum, too hot, too cold. Woman is never quite right. I'm sure we'll dive into that. The more ambitious you are as a woman, the less other people like you just because. That's an idea that Sheryl Sandberg popularized with both her TED Talk and her book. And this moment that we're living in where there is a call for authentic leadership Mm-hmm. And what we're telling women is show up as your full self, right? Be authentic, bring your full self to work. But then we're also dinging them 
with a penalty when they do, when they show up as a mom with a messy hair bun, when they show up as a person who has other things happening in their life. And so those were the three big buckets that I wanted to dig into. And then the secondary component is just the way we internalize all of this and the cost, you know, forget about the financial cost, the cost we pay in the rate of our ascension and professional success. There's also just when I lay my head down at night, how much am I thinking about what other people think of me? Yeah. Yeah. And you talk about the Goldilocks conundrum and it so resonated because as women and as women leaders, we often hear like, you have to be this or you have, you you articulated this so well, you have to be enough, but you can't be too much. So you have to fall somewhere in this special magical place. And we loved this quote in the book where it was like, in the past, you could just be promoted based on the fact that you were this dry, regular person hitting your numbers. But now there's this idea that you have to sparkle. And yeah, it just, I'm sure after writing this book, you've probably had so many women come up to you and be like, yes, this is what I feel every day. Yes, which is the best part about writing a book, which is that you know that you are not alone in the things that you are feeling um, if you are very lucky. The vast majority of feedback that women get is critical subjective feedback, meaning people love to talk to us about the ways that we self-present. The tone of our voice, is it too low? Is it too high? How we sit in a chair, how we use our hands. And that feedback tends to go in two directions. Either you are told you are too aggressive, too assertive, too much. Yes, you get it done, but people don't like you in the process. You need to tone it down. Then there are the women who are told that everybody loves them, right? Every, everyone in the office feels warmly toward them. They're the life of the party. They're the person who brings in the cupcakes on everybody's birthday, but people are just not sure they have what it takes. They don't take up enough space in the room. They don't take up enough oxygen. They're told that they're not enough. And there are also a lot of women like myself who've been given both sets of feedback, right? Who in certain contexts have been told we're too much and in certain contexts have been told we're not enough, which shows you how context specific and how subjective all of that feedback is. And what is so frustrating, I think, especially for women who tend to fall in the you're too assertive, you're too aggressive, is that you may have a male colleague, right? You may be at a firm where you have a male colleague who is being told that he is doing an awesome job because he is showing up exactly the way that you are showing up. And the difference is that we expect men to show up that way. We expect men to assert themselves. We don't expect that of women. And so women, when women do that, it very often offends people's expectations of what they believe they want from women. Yes. I mean, the most likely place that I think this comes up for us is like in the courtroom, an aggressive male, Mm. you know, an aggressive male attorney is the bulldog. An aggressive woman is a bitch. And that's just a known thing. Can I ask you, though, does that play out differently depending if you are arguing your case before a judge or a jury? Like, are you more mindful of that when there's the jury? And yes, because that's the thing. It's like then there are like 12 people, 14 people whose opinions matter. Yes. I mean, right or wrong, people can judge me, but, and it's been a little while since I've been in a courtroom, so maybe things have changed, but up until a few years ago when I was still practicing law, I never appeared in before a jury, I would wear a skirt suit, like occasionally if it was a Friday, maybe I'd put my nice pantsuit on, but I was in, you know, with pantyhose, like the, which I know sounds so crazy, but like, I remember practice when I first joined the firm, this female partner sat us down and she was like, Ladies, you will wear pantyhose. 
And so I always had simple pearls. I mean, it sounds so like, you know, you just tried to lim- you tried to minimize yourself. I always said, I don't want the jury to think about me. I want them to think about my client and the case. And so I, and I would even take my engagement ring off because I don't want them to, I don't want them criticizing. And I know you write a lot about candidates and like Hillary Clinton, we saw this, right? Like everyone is just picking apart every little thing that they wear or say or do. And so I was just, for myself, I was just trying to make it a blank slate and just make my arguments win. Right. And and this is in part the concept of covering, which is anyone who has a marginalized, marginalized identity has been through this, which is, you know, if you are LGBTQ plus and you work in an environment where you don't feel that you can share that, maybe you went on a cruise with your partner. Maybe you just went out this weekend. And when people say, what do you do? You say you were at a family barbecue, right? You like are constantly trying to deflect. Another example is, you know, women covering up their grays so that they don't face age bias. You know, there are so many Spanish speakers not speaking Spanish to each other in the office because they don't want to draw attention to the fact that they are in that environment othered in some way. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, I think that's like a pretty core experience of trying to strip things down to the lowest common denominator. Yeah. And this idea that you have to, you have to be a part of the club and you have to show up, you know, I remember being a young professional and I just so wanted to be part of the guys. So I showed up differently. And now like in the, in light of me too, and all the things we're experiencing now, like the world is just changing so fast. And it's so interesting because things that I know I experienced 20 years ago, I'm like, wow, that wouldn't fly today. And people think, people think my stories are so crazy. And I was like, no, that was just how it was. <laughs> like it just, you know, we don't even realize we've lived through that. So I think this other concept that you, you hit on so well in the book is that for some women, we are driven by this need to be liked. So part of it is we're getting judged by people about how we show up. But then part of it is this idea that we're judging ourselves constantly around, do people like me? And am I accepted? Or, you know, all the things that come with that. And I think reading your book, it felt like you found that to be the case with women, especially. And it occurred to me, like, I don't know if men think about, like, I don't know if my husband goes to work every day and thinks about, does his team like him? <laughs> do, do his customers like him? Right. And, and part of what I landed on is, yes, women are culturated across cultures. This is not a uniquely American phenomenon to think of themselves in relations to others. And I think that that can actually be an incredible superpower, right? That you are aware of the way that your actions impact others. You're aware of other people's feelings, where I think it becomes a real challenge for women is when you are completely governed and dictated by what other people think. And part of what I wanted to clarify for people was this. The more I focused on work, the more I realized that in my life life, right? And I work a lot. Let's say I work 60 hours a week. So like the other few hours that I'm awake and with my family and friends, I only want to be with people who allow me to show up as my full authentic self. Part of this process for me was a real editing down of my friend group to be like, who who do I feel I can really show up as myself with? At work though, I don't know that many people have the luxury of truly not caring what their manager thinks of them, not caring what the lead on their team thinks of them, not caring what their client thinks of them. I mean, there there is an element of this that is naturally relational that never quite goes away. 
what I think it becomes more challenging for women is that sometimes what women need to do in order to get the job done, sometimes in the service of their client, for example, you know, offends people's sensibility of what a woman should do or how a woman should show up in the world. And it's why I think there are some things we can do to advocate for ourselves. I think there are a lot of things we can do to advocate for other people. What I think is an oversimplification is this idea that simply caring less is the way to contend with the likability trap. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And say more, because you even talk about just the emotional energy it would take to not care. <laughs> like there, um, there, there, there's a brilliant psychologist. She has passed, but um, you know, she talks about this concept of rumination and how for women, sometimes one idea or one anxiety can lead to another idea. And suddenly you're in a tailspin about something that you did in the fourth grade. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, let's say you have a young associate, you want her focused on doc review. You don't want her spinning out of control over whether or not she properly, you know, power posed during your morning meeting. And that to me is part of the where managers need to think about this, which is like, what energy are you asking people to use in the service of something that doesn't ultimately impact the outcomes of their work? I felt it was one of the most salient pieces of advice that I got in the course of the book, which was a management executive talking about, you know, when you sit down and when you have a feedback session and when someone says to you, you're too assertive, you're too aggressive, which I'm going to guess is the majority of your listeners that you say, thank you so much for that feedback Too assertive compared to whom would you say this about John? Or is this just something that you feel is specific to me? And then the next piece of it, which I thought was for me even more meaningful, which was, can you draw a line for me from your perception of how I'm showing up to how it impacts the results of my work? Now, there's always the possibility that there is a connection between those two things, right? It's why I don't poo-poo the idea that stylistic elements sometimes do impact the results of someone's work. So, you know, someone may say to you, sure, you consider yourself deliberate. I appreciate that you consider yourself deliberate. Sometimes your deliberation shows up as indecision. Two weeks ago, we were supposed to deliver a client to the deck. You couldn't decide what was the core argument on slide three, and we ended up being two days late in delivering it. Okay, that is now an example of how your style impacts the results and you can adjust yourself accordingly. More often than not, though, what happens is when you ask someone to draw that line, they can't. And that is where we want things to be headed, right? That when we receive feedback, when we give feedback, it is focused on results and focused on whether or not people are delivering whatever it is they're supposed to be delivering. Yeah, that resonates. It's so funny, two of my, more than two, but two of my best friends are attorneys and early in the book tour, they came to a, a book reading, this is pre-pandemic. And they, of course, were like, there's a lot of good stuff in here to you know, help people so that when they are giving feedback, they are not being sued for the way that they give feedback. And I was like, ladies, this is not the purpose <laughs> of this advice. That's how lawyers think, man. We're always risk avoidance, litigation. Yeah. We can't help it. Well, let's take a quick break. We'll hear from our sponsors. And um, when we come back, we'll dive back in. The Lawyers Podcast is brought to you by Posh Virtual Receptionists. As an attorney, do you ever wish you could be in two places at once? 
You could take a call while you're in court, capture a lead during a meeting, or schedule an appointment with a client while you're elbow deep in an important case. Well, that's where Posh comes in. Posh is a team of professional, U.S.-based live virtual receptionists who are available 24-7, 365. They answer and transfer your calls so you never miss an opportunity. With Posh handling your calls, you can devote more time to billable hours and building your law firm. And the convenient Posh app puts you in total control of when your receptionist steps in. So if you can't answer, Posh can. And if you've got it, Posh is always just a tap away. With Posh, you can save as much as 40% off your current service provider's rates. Even better, Posh is extending a special offer to Lawyerist listeners. Visit posh.com forward slash lawyerist to learn more and start your free trial of Posh Live Virtual Receptionist Services. That's posh.com forward slash lawyerist. And from LawPay, the gold standard in payments for the legal industry. For more than 15 years, our partners at LawPay have been helping lawyers get paid faster. In fact, 62% of bills sent via LawPay are paid the same day. To learn how you can enjoy faster and more reliable payments, schedule your demo at lawpay.com forward slash lawyerist. And from Postali. Finding a marketing partner for your firm can be challenging. Are you getting sound advice? Is your marketing agency always working in your best interest? You shouldn't have to worry about these things. At Postali, they believe marketing companies should adopt the same duty to their clients that is required in the legal profession. For this reason, they require that all team members sign a fiduciary oath to act in good faith and put clients' best interests ahead of their own. They service with care, candor, and loyalty. Postali is a full-service digital marketing agency exclusively for lawyers. To learn more about how they're different, visit postali.com forward slash lawyerist. One of the concepts you talk about the, in the book as well is this idea of enough. And what resonated with us is like, we're always trying to improve and be better and be governed around, you know, what should we do? What should we not do? How can we strive to live our ideal life? I think what you do is bring out this other idea for us of authenticity. And is there ever a point where we can just sit and say, I like me, this is enough. Okay. So I think that is a brilliant question, but I also think enough as a mom, enough as a wife, enough as a partner. And by that, I mean a law partner in this case, like, you know, like which thing are you measuring on? And yes, of course you, you want to measure yourself in your totality, but I'm not sure that's possible. And like, I think gaining clarity at work around who the stakeholders are, for example, right? Like it is important that your manager likes you, or at least important that your manager values you and understands what it is you bring to the team. You need everyone on your team to feel that way, not necessarily, but sort of gaining clarity. And then, you know, similarly in your life, like for me, it's important that my kids like me. It's important that my husband like me. It's important that one or two friends like me, but really cultivating that sphere of influence, right? And then to your deeper point, which I recognize that I'm avoiding because it is the harder one, which is like, how do you sit and feel good about yourself? And I really believe, and I wish that I had a better answer for this, but I'll tell you what has been most helpful for me, which is having people call it different things, a group of girlfriends, a text thread, a WhatsApp thread, a you know kitchen cabinet, people who know you well, mm -hmm. like really know you well. Do you know what I mean? Like they see you with your flaws and your imperfections, but then also with your greatest potential and sense of possibility and who you can come to when you have interactions that 
I would say feel funky or feel not right. Or when you receive feedback and you're not sure whether it's legitimate or not, who can help you sort through it? I can't do this work all on my own. Like that is something that I have come to accept, which is I need a peer group that can both hold me accountable and say, yes, that actually, you know, that matches our experience of you. Sometimes when you feel very passionately about a project, you can become very intense and that doesn't necessarily always lead to the greatest productivity on a team. Or they can say like, no, that's whack. Like just ignore that person and move on. Yes. Hearing someone else say, ignore that person (laughs) and move on is actually for me a much more expedient way to do that than to rely on myself. Yeah, no, it's true. And as you were saying that I immediately was picturing a couple of people in my life and, and honestly, in my role as a business coach, I, I do that for people because, because I know a lot of, and a lot of our listeners, like, I think what shows up mostly for us at work is as a boss, right? So we're women leaders, a lot of times owning our own companies. And there's this idea that you want your team to like you. You want to build a culture. We we're so intentional now about the types of cultures we're building on our team. And we're trying to do it differently. And we're trying to bring wellness and balance and all of these things into the picture. And then you have to make a hard decision. You have to let someone go or you have to give someone that feedback that feels more critical. Although my guest a couple weeks ago said all feedback is a gift. So I'll acknowledge that and say, yes, I'm working on it. But right, you have to you have these moments that just and you're like, I have to do this thing. I have to do this thing, which is, I thought Mindy Grossman, who had been the CEO, had done a turnaround effort at Home Shopping Network. I interviewed for the Likeability Trap. I believe she's, when I was interviewing her, she was at Weight Watchers. I believe she's still there. And she talked about the time at Home Shopping Network where a turnaround is never easy. And she had to separate employees out into sort of like who was like a lifer and was in it, who was going to get a test period and who just needed to be out. And the greatest thing that she learned from that period was you need to be clear with people about what the vision and the path forward is and why the hard decisions had to be made, right? Like there's always that why question that follows. And if you are clear and you're clear about the way that those things line up, you have no control over whether or not people will like those decisions and like you as the messenger and delivering them. But it allows you to have something to go back to say, you know, instead of asking yourself, did they like me? As I said that, no, they didn't like you fired them. (laughs) But were you know, were were you honest? Were you clear? Were you fair? That is something that you can have a lot more control over. Yeah. I have that story bookmarked right here on page 171 of the book. (laughs) Highlighted. I love being in the company of fellow nerds. Yes. I was like, oh yes, here it is. Uh, This is great. So Maybe as we wrap up, and first, I'm going to share a quick story. So I have a daughter. She's a month from being 11. So she'll probably just, she would probably say she's 11 now, even though she's got a month. And so last weekend, just the two of us went to dinner. It was super lovely because her, her dad wasn't feeling up to it. So I was like, yeah, let's do it. And we went to Hibachi. That's what she picked. So we're at the, you know, the Teppan table and they're making dinner. And she brought her book and I brought mine because it was Valentine's weekend and we weren't sure how long the wait was going to be. So I had your book with me. And I was just fascinated. So I I told her, I was like, hey, I'm reading this book and this is what it's about. And it was so interesting because she just looked at me straight in the face and said, mom, I'd rather people think I'm smart than like me. And I was like, 
ah, I should listen to my 11 year old more often. But that she, I just feel like there's a shiv into my heart because I'm like, how do we preserve that? Right. Like, I don't want to put her in a glass cage, but I also do. And this is why I want to be honest. There were actually a lot of people who were like, why didn't you do this as a parenting book? And it's like, because I'm not sure that parents alone can change this. Of course, you're going to raise like a strong, smart girl who knows what her value is, but you're also going to send her into a world that still will tell her that she is too much or she is too little. And that is why that to me is what needs to be reckoned with. Yeah. Yeah. Because in this quote in the book, you said, if you knew you had to choose between being interesting and being universally likable, you know, which would you choose? And the question is so great because interesting, I think you would agree, means flawed, right? Interesting means showing up in your true authentic self, whatever that looks like. It may be a messy hair bun one day. It may be mean or direct. I mean, not mean because mean's not the right word, but like I often get sometimes I'm very direct. And so sometimes it gets interpreted as like, oh, I, you know, mean. I don't think I'm intentionally mean to people. I care about people so much, but sometimes I'm just on point. I'm just in business mode, right? I just got to go. I'm getting se- it done. Yeah. I have 17 calls today and five projects to finish. Let's do this. And so I have to like stop and be like, how are you today? How's it going? Like, I, I'm not good at the small talk in the middle of the day because I don't have time for it. And so that's my authentic flawed self. But actually that, that leads me to something, which is, I think you and I are about the same age. And, and as you, as you get a little bit older, you start to realize that those idiosyncrasies, you can actually sort of say out loud. And listen, I, I, I know you didn't mean to use the word mean, because it's true. Like everyone should be like sort of kind, like you can be direct and be kind and that it's just more that we don't expect women to be direct. So that's actually the res- probably more often the response that you're getting, you know, like I'm not giving anyone permission to be a jerk. That's not it either. But I, I do think I've come to to express to people I work with, like when I am focused on a project, it is really hard for me to pull away chit chat. And that does not mean that I wouldn't love to talk to you at another time, but like, this is me managing myself and managing my time. And I have found even those caveats sometimes help make it less personal. Yeah. And that's become especially true as I've become a mom where it's like, I got to get out of here. I'm like working on the margins of time. So like I have to do this and be done. And um, and I'm so sorry if that doesn't built in some of the time that you would like to to develop this relationship. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Is it awesome? Is it awesome that you and I are like, I've got to go. I've got to get the work. No, I mean, I think it's awesome that we can be honest. And maybe it is a little bit with age and maybe my daughter's the example of people are going to get there quicker now, right? Because it took me a lot of years to realize I can say those things and it's okay. And maybe someone won't will like me a little less, but I'll get by. <laughs> maybe that's the whole point. I love it. I know. I feel like this was part interview, part therapy for Stephanie. So thanks to everyone for... <laughs> no, thank you. What a treat. Yeah, it's been so great talking to you. If people haven't grabbed the book yet, they should. It's The Likeability Trap, How to Break Free and Succeed as You Are. I just really appreciate you just, I think just talking about it, right, is the first step. You know, the funkiest thing about being a person who's written a book about likability is then reading the reviews where you're you're like, I did a lot of work to care less about this. And there's still someone in Atlanta who's very upset either that her book showed up with like marks on it, right? Where I'm like, oh, you're reviewing a product. I forgot that you're not reviewing Mm. the content of this. Or just, you know, I felt the problem needed to be articulated before I could move to solutions. And I do think that 
one of the things I recognize in the process of writing Likeability Trap was we've really conditioned women to get to the tips and the tricks. Like we mm. want to believe that if we just had the right tips and tricks that we could change anything, our hair, our lot in life, like our romantic relationships. And it's like, what if actually just the entire system is rigged against you? Like, what if there is no tip or trick that is going to work you out of this? And what you actually need to do is like have a really clear articulation of what the problem is. There are a lot of people who reviewed it who didn't like that. They're like, where are the tips and the tricks? I know. I mean, it's kind of why I didn't ask you about any, because I'm like, this is just the work that we have to do. But that's the start. I still, gave, I still gave you one. That was just a bonus. That was, just, yeah, got it in there. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for being on with us today. I really enjoyed this conversation and you're just lovely to hang out with. I feel like, I feel like we could be you. friends. We would, we would for sure. No chit chat, just deep talk. I love it. The Lawyerist Podcast is edited by Brittany Felix. Are you ready to implement the ideas we discuss here into your practice? Wondering what to do next? Here are your first two steps. First, if you haven't read the small firm roadmap yet, grab the first chapter for free at lawyerist.com forward slash book. Looking for help beyond the book? Let's chat about whether our coaching communities are right for you. Head to lawyerist.com forward slash community forward slash lab to schedule a 10 minute call with our team to learn more. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you.